0: hello and welcome to office hours if you're joining us from youtube you can find out more about what we do and join the show by going to our website at officehours.global There you can be a producer of the show. Uh, We do live on-air questions about media and production. So you can uh, be a producer of the show and guide the direction that we're heading into. We have a fine panel of uh, experts and uh, media professionals from various uh, disciplines. So feel free to put your questions in. We'll have a couple of hours today of general questions and answers. Um, It's also, I will bring attention to We have uh, a new schedule out as well, Uh, end of our quarter or start of our new quarter means that we're looking to see what you want to talk about in each of our different verticals. So check out the daily email and uh, stay tuned next week as we go through the different suggestions of what we should cover over the next quarter. All right, Courtney, what do we have?
1: All right, Josh. First question comes in from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. She says, suggestions for IP-controlled key fill and backlighting. I'm building a desktop, our insert studios, and our offices for Zoom presenters. Thanks.
0: John?
2: I spent a lot of time on this going around machinations, and <clears throat> I, I ended up going with DMX. I'm running the NTEC E-N-T-T-E-C, and I'm running the ODE. I have a Mark II. The Mark III is out now. It's about $300, and that's Ethernet. Uh, to that box and then DMX to all the fixtures. I have nine fixtures here in my little office, but that gives you complete flexibility and scalability. And then I run Luminaire on the iPad, which is the DMX controller app, and you've got complete control of all your fixtures remotely. It's fantastic.
0: And John, would that give you uh, remote control outside of your LAN or uh, just only locally for your particular Um, solution?
2: Um, if you could remotely access my iPad to control it, they they have remote control um, access into those apps, yeah.
3: Oh, fantastic. Good, Jeffrey. A couple of years ago, I interviewed at NAB, a, a company called Philix, F-I-L-I-X, and they were there at uh, this year's NAB. Uh, they have a lot of DMX-controlled uh, lighting. Uh, but uh, for me, what I do on the cheap is I just basically get some of these... Uh, IP controlled switches, uh, plugs, and then the, the lighting, the panel lighting I have is dumb. Uh, I don't have to adjust the lighting at all too much. So once I get it set, then all I just need to do is turn it on, turn it off. And then I just say, Ali, turn on my, my studio, turn off my studio and go from there. The, the, I do have controllable lights like the strip lights that I have behind me um, from Govi. I can control those and change colors and change brightness with, uh, with just a, a command or two.
4: Nigel. yes I use the Elgato lights both the uh, the the minis and the, the full-size ones I, f- I forget their exact names I like them they are they're controlled by Wi-Fi they work on my stream deck and with one button I turn them all on and off
0: and Courtney yeah I
4: use
1: these um, even cheaper these fate feit controlled bulbs that are uh, RGB and two different flavors of white uh, so they have a uh, you know a uh, tungsten and a daylight uh, LED plus some RGB LEDs, and they're all controllable from Google or the Amazon person. So just over voice. So that's what I use for my backlights back here.
0: It seems like the uh, the the well, the only criteria that our uh, question asker used was their control, but it seems like a lot of these solutions they tend to have a decent CRI or uh, was it TLCI. Uh, rating as far as color representation. Yeah, I think the, mine are about a 95 and I think the
1: Elgato's are, are pretty much high CRI.
0: Yeah, maybe we've uh, we've gotten past the era of <laughs> poor reds and our, our LEDs. Let's go to our next question. All right, next
1: question comes in from uh, Tony Mobley in uh, Noonan, Georgia. Uh, Is it a good idea to install DaVinci Resolve public beta on your regular computer.
0: John? Um,
5: When you're beta testing software, you are taking on risk on behalf of the developer. They give you sometimes a free copy of the software so you can test things that are broken and give them feedback. So If you're going to test it for the person and give your feedback, then sure, go for it. If you're just doing it to get the newest, latest, greatest, you might be disappointed in uh, bugs and issues that you'll have with the software.
2: John? You know, I, I tried to follow John's recommendation there, and I installed it, thinking that it would install a separate app, but it overwrote my production version on my main Mac. And and I do editing, but I'm not an editor, according to Mr. Fenwick. Uh, but I have it run on my machine. I've done several projects on it, and it's run fine.
0: Have you been able to test any of the new features, John?
2: Yeah, the text-based editing AI now with AI is not fully baked. The script's better. Um, it, it they'll get it better ne- in the next version. It's 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 not intuitive.
0: Have you had a chance to compare it to um, Adobe or any of the other uh, tech offerings?
2: Adobe, it, it looks like Adobe and Blackmagic both rushed that out the door, just to say that they had it, and it's just it just doesn't compete with the script yet. But I'm sure it will be.
0: Okay, good to know,
4: Nigel. Yeah, I think the uh, the, the Da Vinci betas are quite stable. I guess my question more is, what is a regular computer? If by regular computer you, you mean it's the day to day one you work around and you you do your email and you you surf on, then it's fine and their betas are pretty stable. If by regular you mean a central line production machine that's going to be controlled your whole output, I'd probably not put a beta on that. But just a day to day computer that you're doing email and surfing and stuff that their their beaches are pretty stable
0: that sounds like good advice let's go to our next question next one comes in from douglas carmichael he says
1: a lot of productions large concerts for example have used recorded nasa communications in their intro sequences as a way to build suspense and pump up the crowd why do you think that has been such a popular choice
3: jeffrey I think that answers the question right there. But the the other thing is that the best part about those uh, those types of. Uh, recordings is that they're so silent. They they just have a voice. You can then turn around. You can put something behind it. It's like some sort of inspirational music, just like ramping up to get every to continue to pump it up. And then, of course, it's a natural countdown. I've done many different intros in bands that we had. Uh, Like for instance, there was my favorite one was back in in early two thousand. We had this uh, uh, band called Collapse of Evolution and it uh, we had we found this theme song from japan called monkey which was basically kind of like a 2001 knockoff type uh thing but it was a very poppy type song so we always played that at the beginning another band we played the uh opening to flash gordon and uh you know the movie with queen and then of course we put in some extra stuff right there so it's it's nice it's easy to move around it's easy to edit out uh and edit in things so that's and of course it Definitely pumps up the crowd. Cartney, you have a uh, yeah. The other reason, with...
1: yeah, I've used a lot of NASA stuff uh, in television shows because it's copyright free. Yes, that's right. Everything that is on the the NASA website, almost everything, is free of copyright because it's government owned. So um, they can use it without fear of somebody trying to sue them for using their voice, et cetera. The only thing you have to read their copyright uh, uh, rules. You can't use their meatball logo without permission, and usually they will grant that depending upon what the project is, without having to pay them. Uh, so you know, any of the most of the images, <clears throat> most of the videos that are available on the NASA website, all the media that's available there is pretty much copyright free. So go crazy.
0: What about the worm? Worm's copyright free? I don't know about the the worm
1: the meatball. I don't know about the worm. Yeah, the meatball. You have to get permission to use
2: that in a in a commercial project. Go ahead, John. In that same regard, on the front page of the Fifth Dimensions website, I have a NASA-based image. But I had to give them credit
0: on the bottom. <laughs> Fantastic. How, how do you uh, broker that, uh, John? Did you just go by the abiding rules or...? Oh, I found this.
2: I found an image on their in their gallery, and I downloaded it. And if you read their copyrights, you just give them mention on
0: the in the footnotes. It's oh, called attribution. Yeah, you can just uh, put a little tag at the bottom. Fair enough. It's it's pretty interesting how things get to have sound effects for things like the early cartoon representations of, you know, what what sound represented certain things. Um, thinking about the was probably an annoying Quindar sound for the original NASA. And now it's, uh, it's nostalgic and, and epic. So, you know, all things that are older are new again. Let's go to our next question. Over to me. Boink.
1: Okay. Paul Wallace from Austin, Texas says PO stands for platform for open exploration. And it is Cora's attempt to democratize access to AI chatbots. Is this kind of multiple chatbot access the way to go,
2: John Prado. We're we're right in the middle of these decisions right now. The problem is the API access for ChatGPT four is super expensive, and so if you're giving that away for free, you're spending tons and tons of money. And so it's going to be interesting because Microsoft gives gives it away in Bing. And then it's going to be integrated into all the Microsoft products. And then, as an independent developer, if you're accessing these APIs, you're going to have to end up spending tons of money on all these APIs. And so, there's some business, um, there's some business considerations you need to to uh, to go through, and and it's terribly expensive. Three point five is super
0: affordable, but four oh right now, is super expensive. Yeah, um, and John. What do you specifically use 4.0? And I know when I want something quick, the 3.5 seems to do the trick for me. Is there particular things you might want to run on 4.0 versus
2: 3.5? 4.0 is just significantly better. It's way, way better. Their answers are way better. Um, It's just a way better model. Um, So it's it's interesting because it's hard to compete as a third-party developer against 4.0 for $20 a month. Based upon the existing prices for 4.0, and most of the stuff that you see out there right now with Jasper and you know ten other uh, AI applications that are out there are using the APIs. They're using 3.5, and they're they're significantly cheaper than
0: 4.0. God Courtney.
2: I found a little uh, plugin
1: early on. I don't know if it's using three. It's probably using ChatGPT 3 model called Perplexity. It's a, a plugin for. Um, Chrome, and it just makes a nice little drop-down box, and you can click on whether you want it to ask your question on the internet on this discussion, in other words, related to the discussion you've got open, or this page, and it'll it'll uh, uh, use the, the page that you have up in your browser as the context for your question. So
0: it's kind of interesting, and it?
1: it's free, free, free.
0: I, I anticipate that these... Um intermediaries where they kind of broker the particular AI sur- source on a one-stop shop um, would be helpful as all of these different AI things pop up having something it sounds like Courtney yours is a, just a simple Chrome plugin to be able to direct your search where you want to go but yeah as far as people making discreet you know it's like the streaming wars you know where you had to subscribe to all the different uh, different streaming providers now you got to Subscribe to all the different AI providers. at the Same time. It's, n- it's not
1: just a search. It's a it's a chatbot. It generates text based on the context that's on your on your screen or the conversation that you have going.
5: Fantastic, uh, John. Yeah, when you when a company announces something, it's always good to ask why, and what value does this add to that company? And Quora's whole business model is it's the place you go to find answers. And with tools like ChatGPT or BART or whatever, you go to one spot now to get answers from the whole internet summarized together using AI. And so I think what they're trying to do with this announcement is still be a destination of choice to be the one place you go to access multiple language models. And it makes sense that you would want different language models for different tasks. Uh, For example, if I wanted to have a good understanding as a doctor about uh, diagnosing a patient, I'd probably want a language model that's been heavily trained on medical journals. Um, But if I wanted a solution on how to change the tire in my car, I probably don't want that same language model. So I think they're just trying to make a reason for people to keep coming to their site and they see AI as the future and that's how they are uh, justifying that.
0: Yeah, I I think that's, A fair assessment of it. I, I do think that um, the the, the AI has sort of become the uh, the TLDR aid of people. Typically, you had to once you found the location of an answer, you had to sort of scan down, or maybe if you've turned on. um, I use YouTube a lot to find out tutorials and how to do things, and usually if you scan over to the little heat map. If it's available, you'll see the little hump where the actual protein is inside the, the answer. Um, what I've found interesting is being able to ask, um, discerning questions about that data and not having to go through and read. And I've found it's worked fairly decently, even whenever the, um, the syntax has been somewhat lacking with the, the posts that people have used. It's, uh, GPT has done a decent job enough to, for comprehension not always, uh, every once in a while you have to give it another uh, return but um, yeah I see it as a way of um, sort of advanced search and giving you the exact answer or asking you at a certain question about that or take this, this information that's given and then extrapolate an answer well, what time zone would this be in for someone else on the same thing so uh, pretty powerful stuff let's go to our next question next one comes in
1: from um uh eric potter in hanover germany he says um uh, do you know when the road streamer x will be available and how much it will cost Asked the best av shop here in germany which have it on their website but they don't know
3: jeffrey so i was just just try scanning through the video that i did with ryan At uh, NAB, because of course they announced the Duo. They they announced the Streamer X. They announced the uh, they announced a bunch of stuff. I can tell you, I couldn't figure. I I know I asked him that question, and he did give me the answers. I know everything will be. All these new products will definitely be out by October. One of the two is was he said something uh, about mid uh, mid May uh, at the latest. Now I'm thinking it's the Streamer X, but it could have been that Duo that he was talking on that. I haven't found the uh, a- actual answer, but that's uh, that's about the time frame that uh, we're looking for, no later than October. Courtney?
1: Yeah, right. And as I was showing there, here is um, $399 on an authorized dealer for Rodex. I think it's overpriced for 400 bucks. You know, you could get a uh, a nice ATEM Mini for uh, $100 less than that. Uh, with a lot of switching involved for the video input, uh, rather than just a um, you know video capture card, basically is what you're getting, uh, and a single video capture card, a single preamp, uh, and uh, four pads for playback, playing back some stored sound. Um, so it depends on. I guess they're having to pay the license for all those Apex, uh, um you know, the preamp, all the AFX. Uh, effects that can affect your mic microphone preamp in there, so maybe that's why it's
0: so expensive. I don't know why. Yeah, It's uh, good. You made it through. Good, good job, Courtney. Yes, uh, unaffected as well. Yeah, it's it's a bit of a one stop shop. I could see the um, I could see the ATEM uh, usage model maybe being a little bit. Um, uh, a little bit extra as far as the menus and things going. But um, as far as core functionality, yeah, uh, I don't think it has a ton more than,
3: than what the road
0: has. Go, ahead, Jeffrey.
3: Well, it, you do have it, it does combine a stream, technically, a four button stream deck. It does control your audio. Uh, and uh, I don't know how that's going to work on the Mac, but if on a PC, having, uh, like for instance, on a PC right now, I have the audio for like a YouTube video that goes through my speakers, but through this Zoom call, I actually have it going through my ears, so it's nice to have that separate audio, and that's one of the reasons why the Stream Deck came out with the four dials, uh, was because there's these companies coming out with Boxes that have dials on them that you can control different types of audio maybe from your Spotify maybe from uh, something something else uh, So that's that's where they're going with there, and I believe that also has pass-through uh, But I'm not I, don't quote me on that one just yet, but it does have the ability to capture uh, The camera up to 1080 and uh, it is USB. So I don't know. It's it, 399 I think it's a pretty decent price Yeah, seems to
0: work for that demographic And um, this is a good time to add your questions. Also vote on the questions that we have uh, currently on deck. Feel free to ask any virtual media or production questions or general education questions as we have our educators here on Saturday. Let's go to our next question, Courtney.
1: Next question comes in from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. He says, how would you manage WordPress websites using autonomous
2: AI? John. Wouldn't use it for management. We use it, of course, for content creation. We've been using GPT three for via the API for content creation for blog posts for almost a year now. Uh, but for management, which is usually updating your plugins and then updating your themes, I wouldn't use it for for management yet.
3: Jeffrey. Uh apps like Akismet and Jetpack have been touting that they are AI. Whether they're not or they are or not, uh, I'm not sure. But uh what that does is then it can, it uh tries to figure out what comments are spam, what uh you know uh, things like that. But uh yeah, other than that, uh, as as Preto said, is like everything I can create content with AI. But I wouldn't want to do too much management, and I know there are there is a tool out there that will build a, a full website uh, with AI to kind of is as a malware type thing. So uh, I would stay away from that anyway.
0: Hmm. I wonder if there's. I mean, I don't know if I would do management, but um, analytics might be helpful to uh, to find out specific uh, audiences and be able to sort those um, with input criteria or maybe services that use that might be helpful. But that might be interesting to me. Let's go to our next question.
1: Next question comes in from Tony Mobley in Noonan, Georgia. He says, what setup should I have for visual instructions, hardware and software, camera, mic, ATEM mini, stream deck, etc." cetera? Go
0: ahead, John.
5: It really depends on what you're trying to instruct on. And what you should try to figure out is, what are you trying to achieve with the instruction materials, so what do you what's what are your learners learners like now, and what do you want them to be able to do in the future, and from there you decide what's the best mode to teach them, because if you're not videoing the instructions, if you're just putting together a PDF, then a microphone is not necessary. It's just one example. Um, if it's something you have to update frequently, a lot of times text-based instruction is more flexible than video-based instruction because if something changes, you need to make an update, it's faster and easier to edit text. Um, so in our, in my workplace, typically we are using text-based instruction and because we're using software, we're using screen capture utilities like Snagit and a text editor is 80% of the instruction that we built. For really important things or things that aren't going to change, we do try to do video. And so if you're doing video-based instruction, um, again, if you have something you're trying to show in the real world, you need to make sure you have decent lighting of some sort, whether you go to a well lit area or you bring a light with you, you need a decent camera and different cameras would work better in some scenarios than others, depending on if you're gonna be moving or not. For example, autofocus is really helpful if your subject's moving, um, but it's less helpful if you're just going to be pointing at something. So it really depends on what you're trying to accomplish and what your subject matter is. So if you have more specific questions on like what you're trying to do, uh, maybe can guide this conversation a little more directly.
1: Courtney. Uh, John covered a lot of it there. Um, I've had to create, it depends on what you're creating too. I've had to create instruction manuals on software that I've written. Um, and rather than I've done printed manuals in the past, you know, create with uh, screen scrapes, captures, showing, you know, all the menus and so on, the drop downs, things you should click on. And then I decided, Hey, you know, it'd be a lot easier if I just demoed the software in a video. So to do that, uh, the only things I needed were a, a camera with an HDMI out. So I had a mini cam, a mini camcorder and had a, a 1080p HDMI out. I had an ATEM Mini. And I had a, a recorder, an HD video recorder, which is used for gamers use. And you can get them for around $100 if you don't want to go the route of, of something more expensive uh, like the Blackmagic recorders. Um, and they can record a, a great HDMI, you know, any HDMI signal in with audio. It'll record it in H.264, suitable for upload right to YouTube. And uh, I I gave a demo, and I had, uh, so you have a computer, which you can run your software on. I used a little computer like this. Uh, this is a Melee uh, Windows computer. Uh, so you can run PowerPoints on this. You can run, my software runs on Windows. So if you're demonstrating uh You know something that runs on the Mac, then you have to have the appropriate computer hooked up to one of the inputs on your ATEM and your camera hooked up to the other input. And you can go back and forth between the camera yourself and the uh, screen demonstration of the software that you're using and end up with uh, an instructional video without uh,
0: having to even edit
1: any, because you're kind of doing the editing as you go along. That's a cheap and easy way to do instruction.
0: Yeah, as far as the hardware and software, they're two different uh, methods with two different uh, advantages and disadvantages. The hardware approach that was uh, brought out by our our previous comments is nice to have dedicated buttons and hardware-dedicated devices to use that. You could use other software alternatives to that that tends to be all-in-one and processed on a single machine, depending on how um, production-critical your your presentation is going to be. It might save you some hardware uh, around your device, or if you have to take it somewhere or have it mobile, it's a lot easier to carry a laptop with some software on it than it is to use the hardware solutions. But uh, yeah, it just might depend on what you're interested in doing. I would say that um, if you're thinking about setting something up for a very particular uh, presentation or demo, go ahead and run through the demo- demonstration in your rehearsal, your practice and see if you tend to be reaching for, you know, you want another presentation or demo or slide deck. And if you do add that to your, um, you know, add that to your, uh, repertoire there, add that to the, the list of items that you have. Um, sometimes you'll find, uh, you know, some physical, uh, representations of things can work out sometimes better than having something that's, uh, you know digitally represented too so it just depends on your audience and how they how they like to, to view things let's go to our next question next one comes in from uh, Paul
1: Wallace in uh, Austin Texas he says can you export a YouTube playlist to an HTML file Jeffrey
3: um, actually you, what you can do sorry, I just ran in here. Uh, you can uh, definitely do that uh, you can grab the RSS feed and yes YouTube does do RSS feeds as I learned because they they canceled them for a while and then they brought them back for the podcast thing I believe but uh, anyway so uh, I put the I put the uh, the termage in Makana. Of course I took out all the links so it wouldn't uh, it wouldn't uh, cancel out but it's basically youtube.com forward slash feeds forward slash videos dot xml and then the question mark which of course uh, then tells it where to go exactly and then in this case you would say playlist underscore id and then of course the playlist id of that playlist if you wanted the whole channel you would then do uh, youtube.com forward slash feeds forward slash videos dot xml question mark uh, question mark uh channel underscore id and then of course the channel And then what you take that RSS and then turn that into HTML from there. Thank you, Jeffrey. Let's go to our next question. Next one comes in from Scott Mueller in Germantown,
1: New York. He says, do any of you have a calendar or scheduling service that people can book time with you and see what you have available and what's already booked?
0: Dave?
6: Well, I only have one group that I need to do that with, and that's my community group. And everyone is a full-time working person, so daytimes are very difficult. And then, of course, evenings are always kids and activities and all the rest. So we have a heck of a time getting everybody on the same day or doing it at the (coughs) same time. And we use a Google because we're a nonprofit, we can get the Google services for free. And they all have had to learn how to put their program and their schedule on Google. And uh, we use it to find out availability. And when we want to find out uh, when a best date would be to deal with the city, uh, we put up a doodle poll. And then we invite the city people to join our doodle poll and uh, put in the dates they're available. And then we just get people to check off the ones that cross over and uh, the checkerboard fills in and we get the best date. So uh, that's the one I use. Uh, With regard to my clients, it's always been uh, whatever system they're using, I adopt.
1: And Courtney? I haven't used one where I think it would be dangerous to expose a calendar, uh, your company calendar, to the outside world and let them book their own time uh, because uh, they may not know what else you may have going if, if you're available or your company's available, uh, but internally, uh, but amongst your employees, for example, I have operators that we would have Google Calendar. And the nice thing about Google, Google Calendar is you can have several calendars that you can set up so that some people can, you can make them accessible to certain groups of people so that they subscribe to the calendar Then anything that I post for work coming up in the work calendar. Multiple people can subscribe to that within the company so they can see all the work coming up and they can post jobs that they have coming up in the work calendar and everybody else can see it. So, And you can uh, display two or three calendars on your calendar at the same time and color code them to different colors so you know that, oh, this is something personal I have going on at this point and here's something for work that I have going on at this point. So... Uh, we use that, and it works quite well, uh, you, and it's updated instantly across all platforms, you know, Mac, PC, uh,
0: Android, and iOS. Um, one thing that uh, I've done, not used myself, but um, I have uh, used it for others, is to use Calendly. Um, it does integrate into your calendar, either Google or Microsoft, and there are uh, pricing Uh, solutions there. There's a free one that connects to a single calendar and you can create uh, event types and different bookings for that, um, automated event notifications. So it's a way of getting uh, an outside uh, link that uh, attaches to your uh, contact. contact. So you would give your availability and then those would set up those those, uh, offers. So I've used that to talk to clients. I haven't used it uh, personally to use the first personal in and outs. So it looks like there is a free tier so that you can try. So, uh, Scott, you might try that. Let's go to our next question.
1: Next question comes in from some guy named Josh Kaufman. Uh, has anyone been able to take advantage of AI in zoom or other meeting software to summarize or
5: arrange captions or do transcripts? John. Yeah, I've used Microsoft Teams uh, for their transcription as well as captioning services. I haven't done any of the summarization and it works really, really well. I'm surprised at how strong the transcription is. Day to day, I work in a call center and one of my jobs is to train our speech analytics engine and Microsoft speech transcription is so much better than our internal tool.
0: Yeah, I, I use Teams when I have to and um, I wonder if Teams, so, um, zoom is where I spend most of my, um, meetings in currently, and the thing about the captioning in the native captioning in zoom is that the owner of the meeting has to turn it on for you to be able to use it, which is a bit unfortunate to us, particularly for accessibility reasons for if you'd like to come in and, you know, if, uh, get the captions to, to be able to take advantage of that. Um you will have to phone ahead and make sure that the meeting you're attending does have that settings turned on. Once it's turned on, then you can can utilize the captions and it will create a transcript. Um, The transcript has a really nice um, ability to tell exactly who spoke what, um, since it's native into the platform. There are some other things that I have tried. So um, Otter, .ai is another one that I've been looking into to use. And um, that's one that you're able to use it in real time. Um, Of course, you could take a transcript from um, any transcript you could save afterwards and then upload that to GPT or whatever AI service to be able to to manage that data afterwards. However, uh, the nice thing about purpose-built units is that... um, Typically, if you're just thrown into ChatGPT or something like that, you're going to run into a character limit if it's a lengthy conversation or a lot of uh, back and forth. So uh, I'm interested in getting the meeting highlights and notes um, using it. I'm just starting to get into the Otter AI. Otter is actually what uh, Google is using. It's their partner that um, generates the captioning. Um, And there are premium services that you can subscribe to. you can do a seven-day free trial for otter.ai AI, um, and then have that. Um, you can sort of highlight things while you're in the the meeting. You know, this is an important point, and then later on, you know, you could you could uh, have those points uh, done for you. Um, I think it has a lot of promise to have people be more present in the meeting and less focused on taking notes. If you know that the captioning is being taken down, especially if it's something you can pull against later, but um, I guess it's a space we'll have to to watch. And that's definitely a, a value add to me to, to get a service like this, because my time's uh, valuable. So I'm willing to to look at some of the subscriptions that are available. Josh, on Otter
5: AI, how does it handle the fact that it's recording people? Does it prompt and ask permission uh, to be recorded? That's why I think Teams and Zoom all require the owner to trigger them, is because you are recording people and you need their consent in, most, in many states.
0: That's a good question. Yeah, when I was able to, I just briefly started my uh, seven-day trial uh, yesterday, and it seemed like it was recording things from my end on the otter.ai. Um, so it didn't know the difference between when I was speaking and some, when someone else was speaking. So I don't know if that anonymity um, is something that um, that you have to uh, to add. I believe there was permissions, though. I, um, unfortunately, I didn't get a long time to... To look at it, but I, there may have been permission that asked me whenever I engaged it. Um, in some ways, yeah, I know. In so, some ways, it's it's like add-on services to where it's hearing a conversation and writing in text. Um, what I did miss is being able to determine who said what. You know, you could you could determine what was said in the meeting, but especially if there were multiple parties, you know, just who said what was a was something that uh, you could. Maybe figure out from the context, but it wasn't something that uh, that was used. I don't know if it's possible for that to be enhanced in any way or if it was able to latch into you know the native services, then you know it would have that uh, have that data provided for the AI services. but yeah I'm still looking at it. So I'll keep uh, keep stirring around and I'll let you know how it works out. Let's go to our next question.
1: Next one comes in from Douglas Carmichael. He says, Which CarPlay apps do you find most useful when traveling? Courtney. Well, I don't have CarPlay because I don't have uh, an iPhone, but I do have an Android phone and I use Android Auto. Um, And of course, I use Google Maps for doing navigation. That's the most, that's primarily what I'm using uh, Android Auto for. I do like to listen to podcasts. You can do that. Lawyers, though, got involved with CarPlay and Android Auto that uh, kind of hamper the number of apps that you can run on the uh, car interface because they don't want you messing around and searching through YouTube videos while you're driving. So uh, you're limited to, I think, audio-only apps, and the voice search uh, is fairly limited. In my car, if I hit the button on the steering wheel to do the voice search, the car's voice search uh does, you know, comes into play and it's very bad at recognizing what you're saying. And uh if I hit a button of the microphone on the maps, I can navigate uh using Google, the Google Assistant, uh, on my uh on my car by pressing a, a button on the touch screen. So I can do that, but it limits the amount of, you know, it limits you to a playlist that is uh your own MP3s that are contained uh, in your media that you have plugged into it, like your phone or uh, a USB stick of some sort, Uh, and it doesn't send to playback videos for some reason, at least
4: not to the the screen in front of the driver. Nigel? Yeah, so I rent a car probably uh, every other week, and I just love the fact that in my car, with CarPlay, Life is very easy. So the applications I use most are Waze. So I go everywhere with Waze, which I think is the best of the uh, get-me-round-the-traffic-spots the, uh, the traffic spots. Uh, applications. I listen to Audible, so I've got my books. Uh, I obviously use the phone app, so I instantly, without having to Bluetooth and stuff, I've got all access to all my phones. The podcast
0: app, and then sometimes I even listen to Zoom. And do you, um, do you use the um, physical connection, um, yeah, Nigel? I always, yeah, I always typically use a physical
4: connection, even if it has the Wi-Fi version, partly because I don't want to be fussing with whatever complicated Wi-Fi interconnection this car has. And invariably, on most rental cars, there's a limited number of Bluetooth connections, and they're all full. So now you have to work out how to delete somebody else's Bluetooth connection before you can add yours. And it's just easier if it's got uh, Apple CarPlay. I, I remember when they started doing CarPlay, I actually asked the rental company if they would announce that like they do XM Radio, or that this car has it. But practically all cars now have uh, CarPlay or Android. Although it's interesting to watch GM go the other way and and actually not allow... Um, you know, say they're not going to have car, CarPlay or Android, we're going to have a version of Android in it, which will make me not want to take those cars. Of course, my last trip when I was in Vegas, they gave me a Tesla Model 3, which, of course, is the one thing you can't use CarPlay with. So you have to, but uh, they do have mapping software for it's free and in most rental cars, unless you get a very high-end car where have the, the native mapping in it.
1: Okay, Go Courtney. Yeah, I read about that uh, GM decision where they would not, uh, I think they may have backed off on that. They, I heard that there was a reversal of uh, of position on that, whether or not they are going to do it on all their cars or not. Uh, because, you know, I think there's legal issues because if uh, you're messing, if there's some interface between your phone and the car and the network system in the car CAN can bus, I think is what they use for controlling everything in your car these days. Your car is networked. Uh, to control all the lights and the automatic, all the automatic engine sensing and all of that stuff that uh, tells you the status of your car and the miles per gallon, etc., whether your tires are low, and all of that information. So to in, to integrate with that uh, car-based CAN bus information and your CarPlay, you know, there's some problems with uh, getting those two things to talk to each other because they're two moving targets, uh, and I think. Uh, you know, there could be problems with you know, oh, I didn't know, and I automatic I turned off my automatic braking system by accident when I plugged in my phone, so you you have to be careful and they want to kind of keep those systems separated. so the entertainment system i I would miss being able to access my my uh, media that is on my phone. They do have, of course, in all these new a v systems, there's a place to plug in a USB stick so you can put your stuff in there, but um. I think the legal legal problems arose, and that's why the lawyers got involved, and that's why they're thinking about removing access to
0: CarPlay and Android Auto. And our chat has gotten involved in the conversation. Uh, Joe Kidd uh, mentions that the Panera app uh, works quite well. You have to be stopped, but there's lots of functionality uh, there for that particular app. And Steve Uroff mentions the iExit app might be helpful for you as well. Let's go to our next question.
1: Next question comes in from uh, Todd Weiser in Fort Walton Beach, Florida. He says, does anyone use an audio interface with an iPad or iPhone? If so, what specific hardware, and are there any lessons learned?
0: And um, I have um, connected um, audio interfaces to iPhones and iPads. I will say that they work much better <laughs> than connecting to Android uh, phones or tablets uh, as a universal um, audio interface. Um, I was able to connect um, the, I think it was the Flow 8 that I tried on an iPad with a USB-C connection. to so any of the modern um, iPad Pros that has a USB-C connection, it'll see it as a um, uh, an audio device uh, and I was able to use uh, GarageBand to get multi-channel um, out of that and as a recorder. So quite a lot of mobile functionality. Some audio interfaces tend to lend themselves to um, to being mobile. The Flow 8, for example, can be battery-powered uh, as well and has a separate connector to power the interface than the, interfa- the um, USB connection that you can add into an iOS uh, device, either an iPhone or um, or an iPad. Another thing that I've tried is the Rode Goes, uh to connect into it. Again, works much better on iPhone than it does on Android. I've uh, I've found as a universal device. Um, in fact, so much so that I've had to use the um, TRS uh, connection when using um, non iPhone uh, uh, devices when connecting them. So that they do tend to work uh, fairly
3: well with uh, standard audio devices. Go ahead, Jeffrey. So I, for a little while I was playing with AMP, which is a uh, become a radio DJ app. Uh, It's owned by Amazon. And so what I did was I took my iPad and I set it uh, to the side and I have, uh, well, I have the OWC dock, but I have that downstairs. Uh, I bought, I got the pluggable version of it's a Thunderbolt three dock, but, doesn't matter because the iPad only does USB-C, uh, and I use that at for the inner interface. And I basically use this microphone. I also plugged in another iPad to bring in side music uh, for when I'm not playing whatever songs were on there. Uh, that works really well. Uh, I don't think it would work in a clubhouse situation if clubhouse still has that whole audio versus digital mic thing. And some of the other apps, uh, you'll find that if you bring in something di- uh, that it's considering a digital device it will not accept the audio but if you bring in something it thinks it's an analog uh, audio device it will it will bring it in so that might be something you have to uh, worry about I would always go powered dock over a uh, over a a non-powered dock because they seem to work better uh, because because they're you're getting all their devices are getting powered because the more stuff you put into those uh, things those interfaces the the more it power from the iPad or the iPhone.
0: And again, in our chat, Joe Kidd has uh, weighed in as well. And he said that he was able to use the iRig Duo uh, for an MB7 and a USB camera adapter for both iPad and iPhone, which is this device. So that does tend to um, be more travel friendly to be able to use those devices. All right, let's go to our next question. Next one comes in from
1: Morgan Price in Victoria, British Columbia, Canada. He says, uh, what visualization tools are people using these days for live streams and virtual workshops to collect ideas and build a collective understanding of the discussion? We are still using Miro and curious if there are any other options people suggest.
5: John. John in my experience, people will use either Miro if they are a vendor who's going to be working with lots of different clients who they don't know what platform the clients will be on, or they just use whatever built-in tool that they'll be using. So in our case, we're a team shop, and so we use Microsoft Whiteboard. Um, Zoom shops use Zoom Whiteboards. But if it's a company that works with lots of different other companies, typically it's Miro.
0: Yeah, I I do know that... um... There was, I don't know if it's native, but Freeform on the iPad has making a, made a foray into that general area. Um, not quite baked yet, but maybe an option for some. Let's go to our next question.
1: Next one comes in from... Uh, Scott Mueller in Germantown, New York, he says, Does anyone know of a good travel 50-foot Ethernet cable that I can suggest to clients to take with them on the road that is easily packable and rewindable? Wi-Fi is never, ever
3: easily acceptable for Zoom. Jeffrey, I'm going to show you this right now. This is the 100-foot cable that I take in productions with me. And I will, first of all, say there is no easily rewindable Ethernet cable that would be reliable in the end. Uh, so, if you see this, this cable right here, as you can see, it's nicely wound. It's got, a, it's got at least six inches or more in the wind. It is over-under. And the best way to do an over-under uh, and train a cable to do over-under and under is to warm up a room put the cable in the room, let that warm up as well. Don't put it in the oven, that's going to melt or anything, but uh, you'll want to have a nice warm room. And then you train the cable. And what I mean by over-under, for those that don't know, you bring it over like this and then you flip it so it goes underneath. And the reason why you do that is because when if you were to throw the cable, hold on one end and throw the cable, with a perfectly over-under cable, it would actually unravel without any tangles. And that's the beauty of that. You want to have this type of loop when you do a, a 50 foot, or in this case, 100 foot. And then I use these uh, these fun, these are, are tarp, uh, tarp holders. And the reason why I use this is because they're, they're easily clippable into anything and they're easy to take off. Uh, so you can take off, you can pull out the cable that you need, and then you can put this right back on, so it keeps uh, keeps the loop going from there. So those are the things that I would suggest. But there's no, no don't do the over the arm, don't do uh, tight tight wraps because if you do, then uh, then you're you're risking the the wires getting broken. And one more thing is, and as I took put set the cable down, make sure that the ends have uh, good caps on them because if they're loose caps or anything like that these things start to pull off as you can see i've got a nice little holder on the uh, on the on the peg because that usually will break off on an ethernet cable and then uh, when that happens then these things don't work that well as travel cables courtney yeah i don't suggest carrying those in your
1: carry-on it's tsa is going to see that show up in the x-ray and have to take a look at it or pull you aside uh, and I don't know of anything that's 50 feet. They, I always carry something like this in my laptop, sorry, in my laptop case, uh, which is a retractable six footer uh, Cat 6. And I carry a couple of these, and they're handy to have because they'll fit right in the pocket of your uh, uh, laptop case. And you can, in a pinch, you know, if you get near enough to a uh, within six feet of a an Ethernet connector, you can click, uh, plug that in. Or I get a couple of those and a female-to-female RJ45 connector to connect two up together, and that'll give you 12 feet, which in a hotel room is probably enough to get you to the desk. Uh, a 50-footer, I think you're going to be on your own or doing like Jeffrey says, just taking a big hank of coiled cable and dealing with the uh, all the kinks and
3: and uh, knots that that's going to end up. Jeffrey one other thing is that that cable right there also a 25 footer that i had came from best buy so if anything you just give them like 10 20 and say go down to best buy get yourself a 25 foot cable or whatever uh, length cable that they need and then keep it because sometimes you just you just got to do that and it, it makes it a lot easier
0: and our uh, chat has weighed in um uh, a thank you, uh, Jeffrey, for the over and under uh, demonstration. And um, also, Ken Campbell has weighed in too with an Elite Core brand of extra heavy duty uh, brand of uh, cable. So, if you have a demanding location, that might be helpful. And also, um, another Ugreen link has been left in the chat from Mickey as well. Go ahead, Courtney. One warning, though, if you're doing over-under,
1: is that if you pull the one end through the center when you're going to unwrap that cable, it'll come out in a knot every two feet. So uh, bear that in mind. You'll have a whole string of knots, and you're going to have to unplug it and undo each knot as you go. So make sure you keep uh, the ends on their respective sides and somehow attach them so that you know that that end hasn't fallen through the center of that coil. Because if it falls through the center and you pull it, you're going to end up with a knot every three feet. Good advice. Nice. Let's go to our next question. Thanks. Next one comes in from Laura Thompson in Beaumont, Texas. She says the other day I had to do a recording on my Mac for work, and I ended up using Screen Share in Zoom and a local record. When is the right tool? Uh, when is the right tool? The tool you know that can get the job done versus the most professional way
5: john again it really depends on your outcomes Um, i recently had a five minute presentation for our department and i spent two and a half hours on a four slide deck which feels like a long time to be spending on four slides but when you think that it was a five minute presentation for 300 people whose average salary is between 15 and 20 dollars that five minutes cost the company over $500. So I invested my time to make sure that it was really solid and professional and I could reuse it again in the future. Um, On the other hand, sometimes you're doing something for a small audience that just is a one-off and you'll never need to use again. Sometimes you use the the simpler tool for that. And if you want to know more about the full process, um, there's an actual process, especially when building instructional materials called the ROI process, and there's an ROI Institute, Um, the ROI Institute has this book, it's called real world training evaluation. And it will take you through step by step how to identify. And what you're trying to figure out is, is the effort I'm putting into this? cost less to the company than the benefit the company gets out of doing it. Um, so I'd recommend a, a full ROI technique when you're doing large projects and sometimes just a quick little who's the audience for, how long will they need it, and do I need to reuse it um, to figure out
0: which tools to choose. There you go. Well done, John. Next question.
1: Uh, Todd Weezer in Fort Walton Beach, Florida, asked, has anyone using... Has anyone been using AI tools like ChatGPT, Bard, or Hugging Face to support any of their work? If so, how
5: so?
0: Show and tell. Start with John.
5: Yeah, what I've started using ChatGPT for is designing multiple choice questions. Um, strong multiple choice questions in assessments are quite challenging to develop. You want your answers to be believable and reasonable and also test what the lesson plan is for and it can take hours to write a series of multiple choice questions or i have a mega prompt that i now put into chat gpt and say give me 20 multiple choice questions and i can have gpt refine them if i need to um, instead of being two hours to write a 10 question assessment i can do it in about 20 minutes
0: john
2: you use, use gpt for every single day for for every composition i write is is run through gpt i use it for translation it does 64 different languages I use it for programming um and then I use stable diffusion um we're using stable diffusions new lm which was just released which is open source model now so that we can run it on our own infrastructure so we'll let you know how that goes and then and then also mid journey for images
3: so um super useful stuff jeffrey yeah exactly mid germany for images i use i started with chat gpt for getting article frameworks done uh, because that was always the most frustrating thing is to kind of figure out where I was going to go in in the articles that I write. Um, I always want to put my voice into it so that framework is then, uh, I then uh, scan it over and then turn it around and change things so it makes it sound coming from my voice. I have switched over to Bard when it comes to doing that because Bard not only has a better Structure set up in my my opinion, but it also gives me the references of where it pulled that information from. So if I need to use it for footnotes, then I can I can definitely uh, refer to that. Especially if there's something that, like for instance, if I'm if I'm res, uh, doing a uh, review on a product or something like that, and it says something that some spec that I didn't think was in the product, and then I can go back to these uh, footnotes. And see where they, they pulled that from, as opposed to what I saw from, like maybe a camera, a framework or something like that. Uh, and then make sure that the, the stats are correct or they're not pulling from a previous model of a device or anything like that. And um, maybe... You know,
0: selecting what tool to use uh, is probably as it's probably just as interesting of a conversation we can have around how you use those particular tools. So, for example, do you have a particular prompt that you use, or uh, certain um, uh, lines that you use for creating specific things in your workflow? For example, when you might use photorealistic versus line art, maybe in creating icons for things versus illustrations. Well, that's what I typically do as far as the line work or the illustrations. Well, I stump them. All right, let's go to next question. This
1: one comes in from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas says what upgrades would you like to see to Apple wallet and find my coming up in the Worldwide Developers Conference in a few weeks,
5: John Snyder. I won't be in WWDC, but I want Find My on every single Apple product. I want it on both my AirPods and their case, my my watch, as well as my special Apple TV remote. Go ahead, Nigel.
4: Yeah, so my issue is more with the first one, which is the wallet. So uh, I know there's the savings account. I can't for life me work out how to apply for one or turn one on, so I probably need to watch a YouTube video. Because what I'd like to do is move all my Apple cash that I earn from using my Apple credit card into a savings account. And the Apple cash seems fairly inflexible. I can send it to my bank account, but I can't really move it to one of my cards. So uh, I think that they've started down a good way. I have to tell you uh, whether it's Apple Pay or Google Pay, or whatever it is, the, the whole... Almost everywhere I go now, uh, I can use it. But I'd really like the ability to move money between the cards. So if I earn money back, I can use it to pay off the card. And I, I, if there's a way to do it, I haven't worked it out yet. On Find My, I'd rather not lose My. So I really don't want to learn too much about it. Go ahead, Courtney.
1: I saw a recent news story about a, a problem that uh, a lot of people have been having with iPhones in that uh, people have been uh, kind of looking over their shoulder and, and watching someone enter their four-digit code, unlock code, and then stealing their phone. And uh, once you have that unlock code in, uh, you basically have access to their uh, Apple Wallet or touch to pay a lot of their banking accounts, anything, any apps that they have that open automatically once that phone is unlocked. Uh, Has Apple ever come up with a uh, fingerprint reader or some uh, biological way to identify you, which is what I use on my Samsung phone all the time, so I feel it's a lot more secure. So if somebody grabs my phone out of my hand, they can't, unless they cut off my thumb to go with it, uh, they're not going to be able to unlock my phone and get into all my bank accounts.
0: Go ahead, Nigel.
4: Yeah, I was just uh, looking for the, so they did do that. So first of all, if you're in a bar, uh, use facial recognition, never use your your uh, numbers to get into your phone. So because if the, you just use facial recognition, that won't work. Um, so that's the first lesson. The other thing is there are ways around securing uh, using, I think it's focus. I, I I did try it and I don't remember how to do it. But there is a way of securing so you can't change your ID stuff. So if somebody gets into your phone, there's a second level of lockdown. I'll look for it and, and post it in uh, in Makana. But the, the, the basic answer is make sure when you're in a public place, you only use the biorhythms, whether it's uh, through your face or some other way. Never put your code in your phone in public.
6: Dave? um just to offer some clarification for some people about how mac does find my um you can actually use your icloud login to find any of your devices so i find my ear earbuds and i find my laptop and my Even my sister's iPad, who's on my list, because she's part of family sharing. And um, actually, I found her in Lithuania one day. Mm. Anyway, uh, that's for Find My. But the the wallet thing, I'm I'm not a wallet user because they don't offer it here in our banks. But uh, I do pay with Apple Pay. And I've set it up so that, yes, I have facial recognition on my phone to get in but whenever I'm doing something in my banking or in Apple Pay, for instance, buying something online, I have to have a confirmation from my touch. So there's a double click button on your phone and it asks you to do a double click so that you can verify this is you doing this, this uh, purchase. And that was set up for me when I did set up my Apple Pay. So it is possible to have that double layer for what Courtney was talking about. Uh, Touch ideas on your um, iPad, and that's one you can use there. And on the phone, it's a double-click on your uh, side button.
4: Go ahead, Nigel. Okay, I worked it out. So here's, here's here's the way around it that I learned. And I apologize, I'm looking down at my phone. I don't know if it's set up. If on your iPhone you go into Screen Time, and within Screen Time do content and privacy restrictions, you can actually disallow passcode and account changes, and put in a secondary passcode that protects it, remember the secondary passcode. And then if somebody, if you do use your four or six digit or whatever it is to get into your device, they can't actually, if they will walk off with the device and use that, they couldn't actually change your account codes and they couldn't do any of those things. So there's, it's a strange secondary way around it. But the best answer is never use your four or six digit code in public.
0: All right, let's go to our next question.
1: All right, coming in from um, Morgan Price in Victoria, British Columbia. For summarizing feedback interview data from multiple interview transcripts, transcripts, any AI tools you'd suggest to summarize and find common feedback? ChatGPT is a good summarizing tool. Uh, One meeting, but what about multiple interviews?
5: Well, and I think the problem with our current set of tools is they tend to have character limits. Um, All of them have some level of character limits. And I assume that's because the computation power that it takes in order to analyze those gets more and more. um, It probably scales significantly faster than you might expect. And so that's why they're trying to keep their costs down. Uh, I'm not sure that's the case, but it does seem to be a problem. And I don't know what the answer to it. As we're going into our second hour, uh, remember that we have a great panel here who can answer your general questions, which we'll do our second hour on general questions, as well as education specific questions. So if you have questions about presentations, public speaking, instructional design, um, making videos for instruction, those would all be great questions to ask today. Uh, We'll lead in with our next question.
6: Our next question comes from Douglas Carmichael and he's asking, Claylock famously uh, spoke of shading cameras for Hasmuk in South Africa from his trailer in Minneapolis. When you're setting up remote cameras to capture a high risk event like the SpaceX Starship test, uh, do you shade them or fix the image in post?
5: It doesn't look like we have. Uh, our- I
6: could chime in here uh, in that you know, remote cameras are good if you're doing a live event and you want to shade them, but you you don't often change the shading on a camera when you're finished doing it in a set. You've got four cameras, for instance. You've shaded them all and matched them, but what you're doing from then on is just controlling brightness, contrast, and and helping with uh, the image levels so that they match. But you're not going to recolor it in post. Um, Posting a live event, of course, is is interesting and that you want to cut things out or change the order of what things condense it like you would for a sports event and that, but I don't believe you'd be shading the cameras at all in post and in remote camera setups. Yeah. If you've got control of shading, which Claylock clearly has, uh, it's a good way to have all that match when you start your show and, and do your live event.
5: Great. What's our next question?
6: Next one's from Paul Wallace. He's asking, has anyone had great success with Chromebooks? What are the pros and cons?
5: I know lots of different schools are still using Chromebooks and the main pro is cost. And as long as you're just doing stuff in browser-based tools, they're a great solution for that problem. Um, They're low cost, easy to replace, nothing, no data gets lost because all the data is stored in the cloud. So for educational purposes, I totally see why they're often selected. If you want a powerful tool to um, do anything outside of the internet, they're pretty weak. What's our next question?
6: Our next one is from James Haldane in California. Has anyone tried using an Intel NUC Extreme for running Wirecast?
5: Jeffrey?
3: So, I haven't used a Nook uh, Extreme, but I have used a Nook uh, in using Wirecast, both Wirecast and vMix for that matter. Uh, and uh, the difference between uh, the Skull Canyon Nook and the Extreme is the Extreme you can customize a little bit more. Uh, and it really depends on which extreme you're talking about. But, uh, like, for instance, the 11th generation, they have a 12th generation. Now they have the 13th generation Nook Extreme. With the 13th generation, I believe it has dual Ethernet, it has multiple uh, USB ports, and uh, expandable memory, expandable drive in there, and the ability to put in your own graphics card. So the Skull Canyon I have has AMD graphics in it that's that's built in. It's uh, actually the dual discrete uh, so you can do, use either the Intel or the AMD stuff. Uh but with the extreme you can put in your own graphics card so you can choose Nvidia or AMD from there. Uh so it treats it more like a regular desktop. Uh with that said uh, there, I, I have, I don't think there'd be any problems with that. Uh, having, uh, the t- what, USB three, I think there's Thunderbolt on there, uh, Thunderbolt three on those uh, devices. It should work just fine.
5: Next question. Our next
6: one comes from Paul Walhus in Austin, Texas. He asks, are you surprised that you can now make money on Twitter by selling subscriptions? And he has a verge article link.
3: Jeffrey. Well, subscriptions have been around in Twitter. It was actually called super follows before that. So, uh, but uh, with subscriptions, actually, it makes sense. I, YouTube does that with their um, with their membership on on YouTube channels. So, if you set up a YouTube membership, you know you get a part of of uh, whatever somebody's paying per month. They get a part of whatever somebody's paying per month uh, for your content. So, it's it's a great partnership. I think it's a great idea, and I'm surprised that—and uh, maybe I'm wrong—but uh, I don't—I haven't seen it on Facebook at all.
5: Yeah, it's surprising. It seems like everyone's trying to get involved with the creator economy, and I—I I find it especially ironic that Twitter had all of that uh, disagreement with um, that newsletter subscription service, I can't think of the name of it off the top of my head. And then they try to do the exact same thing by providing the same service their competitors have. The nature of companies is to see what your competitors are doing that's adding value to your customers and see if you can do the same thing and bring customers into your own product. What's our next question, Dave?
6: Douglas Carmichael asks, when you sign up for Apple One via your mobile carrier, Verizon Wireless in this example, Can you add extra iCloud storage via iCloud Plus if you wish to pay for it? Dave? Well, iCloud Plus is a service Apple offers, so most of the carriers will let you do that. But uh, you don't really change your setting or add storage for iCloud Plus, uh, unless you're directly dealing with Apple, so you can go to Apple and change your iCloud Plus settings and expand your capacity. You can also change other things that you get as a service from the Apple One, which is you can do uh, physical exercise on it, and uh, you can have audio services and uh, Apple TV Plus is all part of the Apple One package, the bu- bundle of services that's uh, Apple One. So in all of those cases, you can uh, rent a movie, uh, subscribe to some uh, things on Apple Plus, uh, Apple TV Plus, and you can also change your uh, iCloud capacity at any time. So, and, and then you can unsubscribe from things as well through
5: those services. What's our next question?
6: We go back to Paul Walhus on this one, Uh general question. Uh, any thoughts on this wearable projector? And he has a, a YouTube link.
3: Jeffrey. So these types of projectors have been around for many years. In fact, that video that, uh, that Paul showed there is actually 14 years old. So I've seen many in it, uh, uh, CES and, and other events like that. Where it was more of a projector that sat on the table and then it projected your keyboard, then you could type from there. They work okay uh, in a pinch; they'd be perfect. I don't like the fact that I'm tapping my fingers on a table because it doesn't have that response that uh, that I'm always looking for in a keyboard. Um, but on on the fly, uh, especially if you got a projector and let's say you're connecting up. Uh, an Android device, or or has Android, or or uh, anything like that built in, and you want to do quick searches, it's really nice to have that. And and if you're using them for a kiosk where they get to do searches, having them tap on a wall would, is a lot easier than actually having a keyboard uh, uh, close by for them to use. So it, it's it's a decent idea. Uh, just never really uh never really went past an area at a certain point, and you can still get them, but. Nobody's really uh, bringing that technology further. Next question.
6: And this is a follow-up for Paul Wallace. He was very keen on how Ethernet cables can be wound, and he's wondering if there's a demo of the over-under way of winding a 100-foot Ethernet cable.
5: Um, Jeffrey, can you demonstrate that for us? <laughs> yeah,
3: let's see if I can do this. So. Okay, I unwound some of the cable. So over under is basically this: the first the first line of the cable goes just, just like you would wrap it like that, and then the second cable, a uh, part of the cable, you would you end up flipping it, so you're turning it, so you're giving it like a little cross in there, and then bringing that in, getting it to the same level, uh, same circle circumference as as the other part, and then you just rinse and repeat. So over under. over and it's already undering for me and that's that's the one thing like i said you want to do this in a very warm area so the cable starts to uh is easy to wrap and it will allow it to train itself uh with the over under cuz after about uh, 5 10 times you'll see this cable's doing fairly perfect we got a small little problem right there but it's doing fairly perfect for wrapping and it gets a lot easier cuz like i said you start Pulling it up and it'll just over and under itself.
5: And Jeffrey, are you twisting that with your fingers when you're doing the wrap, or is it just? Yeah. Uh,
3: well, like I said, to... it, it makes it easy to, on its own. But yeah, when when I do that, uh, let's do it that way. So that was the over. And I, if in the in the initial training, you definitely do have to twist a little bit with your fingers to get it to go under. And sometimes it'll it'll look unruly, like something like that. You just have once again you just have to keep training it and and remember that you're doing over under over under over under don't do over over under because that just kind of defeats the whole purpose all right next question
6: our next one is from alexander knight in vancouver canada he's asking has anyone tested variable nd filters from different brands tiffin or nisi or b plus w etc any favorites dave well i put my hand up on this because i'm really intrigued by a variable nd filter Um, i don't think i've ever used one and i've never been exposed to someone who is using them so i'm not helpful in that regard but all the nd filters i've ever used uh, fortunately came within the camera i use so for my video shooting uh, many of the big cameras i used gave me three different nd filters that i could swap in inside behind the lens and other people i've worked with have used the tiffins uh, mounted in in front of the camera to control the level of uh, contrast in the picture so i I don't quite know how a variable nd filter would work and where it would be mounted on your system and presumably it's on the front end uh but i'm personally very intrigued and i'll probably have to look it up and see if it's applicable to what i do
5: what's our next question
6: from Paul Wallhouse, Austin, Texas, the beeper beeper made from a Raspberry Pi. And he offers us a Twitter uh, link to see it.
5: It's a really neat looking thing. Um, somebody spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to replicate 30 year old technology in using a Raspberry Pi. So um, I'd recommend looking at the video, but yeah, he turned, uh, took a little screen and put through a battery on of a Raspberry Pi and now he has a beeper, so teach his own. Next question. The next
6: one comes from Alexander Knight in Vancouver, BC, and he's needing information on moving headlights uh, that does not have an annoying loud fan, um, presumably because he wants to try one.
5: I'm not even sure what a headlight is. Jeffrey, can you enlighten us?
3: Yeah. So basically what this is, is you have a gobo or a moving, at least that's, that's how I'm reading it. So moving light is like a stage light. Uh, that has, it's like a P- light on a PTZ uh, head. So, and a lot of the older ones have really loud fans because they were using, you know, regular CFL lighting. LED lighting has changed the game, but they're still pretty loud. There is There are people that have switched out the fans for silent fans. Those work really well. Uh, some people have tried heat sinks to make the fan... Uh, uh, and you not have the fan uh, work so much but at the end of the day when you're up on stage it gets really hot on stage and you're you're just uh, you just have all these lights going it's eventually going to kick in any type of fan so i don't i don't know of anyone that has a no fan to it but uh i i'm not exactly sure how to get rid of that and how where that's causing a problem so maybe even moving the light to a different spot, if, if like if it's in the front of the stage or something like that, uh, where it's very loud, so that just moving the light out of that general vicinity might help as well. Next question.
6: From Douglas Carmichael, the State of New Hampshire Relay Service also provides captioning services for webinars and meetings. With platforms like Zoom adding native AI captioning, is there still a need for such a service?
5: Yeah, so for those of you not familiar, uh, a relay service is or TTY service is a service for accessibility, which allows people who are um, otherwise deaf or hard of hearing to navigate tools specifically for phone services. So, and I forget what the number you can dial, but there's a three-digit number you can dial, um, and you can get connected with a TTY operator, and um, it allows you to talk on the phone essentially. The question here is, um, do we still need that sort of things when there's companies integrating closed captioning into our products? And the answer is yes, because um, what these services provide is accessibility for everyone, and companies aren't otherwise incentivized to support uh, the needs of all of their users. So the government steps in and um, funds Different services to enable that in the healthcare industry it also includes things like translation services for those people who don't speak English but um, it's an important service and I'd expect it to stick around essentially forever because not everyone in the world has access to every tool that's out there and companies aren't necessarily going to be required to integrate those in with them so uh, we still need it uh, for everybody next question
6: Paul Walhus, Austin, Texas, asking, is the Blue Sky decentralized version of Twitter going to succeed where others have failed? And why do Twitter wannabes fail?
5: Twitter wannabes fail because it's a really hard problem to solve and it requires a certain amount of network effects where you have the majority of users which drives people to use your platform. And Twitter has always had that. Blue Sky is an attempt to provide the same service as Twitter uh, with different ownership. But Dave, I'd be curious to hear your opinion.
6: Well, I think it suffers from the network effect. People get comfortable using one platform, and they form a network of friends and people they know, and it's all in that same platform. This again with MySpace, goes to Facebook, goes to Twitter, and the blue sky effect prevents competitors to being able to get in on that and convince people to leave the platform they're already using mm-hmm. and then go to another one which may or may not have the same capacity. And as John said, it's a difficult thing to handle that kind of instantaneous communication. Twitter has been remarkably successful at doing it, and I see uh, WhatsApp and um uh, one of the others, uh, that, that do a nice, uh, competition for it. And Twitter is actually not very popular outside of the U S. So you'll find a lot of people have the network effect for some others. And then when somebody wants to take on just Twitter, uh, they're going to have a tough time.
3: Jeffrey. Twitter was a lonely fish in a big pond. There were other, there were other uh, devices other than Twitter. I remember, uh, and it's still around. I think it's called Plurk. P L. Well, it is called Plurk. P L U R K. If it's still around, I have, I haven't checked mine in a very long time. And they used, uh, they used a ranking system, uh, a. Uh, Karma ranking system. So the more you posted, the more people liked you. Your your points raised up, and the less you posted, your points are raised down. With that said, uh, now with Twitter, you know, with the whole Elon Musk, we had a whole bunch of different uh, programs also pop up, like the blue uh, Blue Sky, like Spoutable, like uh, Mastodon, and Mastodon had the best possibility because it was very open. But the problem was. Everybody got confused because you had to choose a server uh, to, uh, to be part of. And even when I tried to uh, first put on my Mastodon uh, uh, URL, that it, I didn't know exactly where I was going to go. And the more bigger concern, if the, since this is open and somebody's contro- somebody else is controlling the server, if they turn off that server, all that stuff is gone. It's just, that's it. And so, if I set up a uh, if I set up a channel and post a lot to it, I want to have longevity to my posts so I can have my followers. I did the Google Plus thing. I had fifty thousand people on a podcast uh, uh, podcast group that was growing and growing, and then Google Plus just went bye bye. And I lost that all in one fell swoop and I don't want to see that happen again that so what I'll do is I'll go up on stuff like blue sky or spoutable and I'll get my name but it really has to impress me because sometimes there's the third part and that's the hidden agenda that some of these uh, some of these social networks have you know like the parlor type of things and we I just don't want to deal with uh, something that I don't have uh, I cannot believe in Dave
6: I'm glad Jeffrey mentioned Google+, Plus because I completely forgot how much of an advocate I was for that. I told everybody I knew to get on Google+, Plus and I tried to make circles of my own, and then larger circles and professional circles, and I tried to contribute quite a bit to Google+, Plus and I even made a couple of friends on there. And then, as he says, they unplugged it when they gave us fair warning, of course, but they unplugged it, and I went, oh, okay, now what? So I kind of took all of what I had on Google Plus and moved it over to Medium, and Medium worked very well. And Medium actually offered a chance for people to clap on what you did, and then you could actually earn money on it. Um, but now I find Medium is very difficult to deal with, and um, so I've gotten off that one too. But that was, of course, my choice. They haven't unplugged Medium, and uh, I I think when you're getting into a new decentralized or uh, improvement on Twitter or whatever it is you're looking for. All the things we've mentioned today are considerations for that, that kind of thing.
3: Jeffrey. And uh, back to Twitter. Uh, if Twitter was to close down or now it's X or whatever however that works, if, if they decide, okay, we're going to purge everything start over again, I, you know I had my time on Twitter and I'm, I'm perfectly fine. If it was to disappear tomorrow, I don't want it to disappear tomorrow. I've put too much effort into it, but it has given me the longevity that I needed. When we did the mass exodus from MySpace to uh, Facebook, uh, you know there was a lot of people that that put in a lot of time and effort. And I don't remember a lot of people saying, "I'm not leaving MySpace." No, I'm staying. I'm not going on Facebook. I'm not going to do it. I just just too much work. But then it became the popular thing. So that's that. It, it, that's the big thing. You just have to ask yourself: Is if I'm going to something like Blue Sky? Yeah, Jack Dorsey's behind Blue Sky but will it have the longevity that I need to build up my uh, channels? Uh, you know, Clubhouse, another perfect example. Everybody put a lot of stock in Clubhouse. Now there's a question of whether, how it can survive, how it can do the 10-year uh, point. So now that Twitter has Twitter spaces and, and some of these other social networks have very similar, and Discord's got its own uh, its own version. Uh, and some of these that other social networks have, have put in, have basically said, well, we're done with it and they've taken it out already. So uh, the longevity is the key. Can you, can you start and build an audience that if it was to go away tomorrow, that you could take your audience somewhere else and they'd follow you? Next question.
6: Paul Walhus uh, is interested in the new firmware update that he thinks is soon to be released for RODECaster Pro 2, which unlocks a hidden feature, wireless microphone connectivity. Does this change your opinion of the Pro 2?
3: Jeffrey? Absolutely. The Pro Duo, so at NAB, we saw the Pro Duo, which is a smaller version of the Pro 2, which I'm seriously thinking about getting not as much for podcasting for something else that I'm doing because of the fact that i can connect with those uh those uh rode microphones and i did watch he did connect it up uh on the duo with the uh, wireless microphones and it worked really really well so i'm i'm kind of excited uh, plus the fact you know i did ask him about the 2.4 gigahertz on the Rode. the next version is called the rode wireless me which that's a, available now for 199 and they're their algorithm that they're using for their 2.4 gigahertz apparently will survive a hundred foot in like an NAB or a CES without breaking out and uh, I definitely want to test that if that works that well I can use those wireless mics for what I'm thinking of with this uh, device and of course with podcasts as well because then you could be in a crowded area and have people walking around that crowded area and still connected up and, uh, and creating content from there so and it, it works at, with the interface that you see on top. It'll just show as a graphical interface that you're connected to the Rode uh, Wireless Go or to a regular microphone or USB microphone. It's it's turning into a board that uh, I've been expecting for the last 10 years to uh, to have on my desk. Next question.
6: Next from Douglas Carmichael, Native Instruments has introduced speech output for visually impaired users. Why do you think so few other music software vendors have thought about this accessibility question?
5: I think it largely has to do with the effort and cost it takes to integrate it, and I'm curious as if AI tools as these tools become more ubiquitous, start integrating them because the cost to integrate them will go down over time, uh, but we'll just have to see on that. Next question. Oh, sorry, Jeffrey.
3: So the other thing is that we are going into uh, APIs and open standards uh, that allow allow for things like this to get integrated back to the road. The one thing that Ryan said is we don't like to leave our our, our customers behind. Now the the first Road Pro uh, board didn't have the technology that the uh, the go the second version has and so the second version can be upgraded to what the, the duo is going to have so they're realizing that by by having this and having an open api to this people are going to write stuff that's going to make their hardware uh a whole lot easier to use so it it makes sense to do that and and you know like for instance i have a mixer over here that does not have an open api you got to use the ipad to uh to use it and you, you can't do anything else you can't put any effects in there or anything like that but then you got something like a, I i think behringer <clears throat> excuse me i think behringer has an open api so you can add stuff to it and that makes it a whole lot more useful for what i'm doing and then you go back in fact a, a couple a couple of these vendors that have customizable things vmix perfect example the the tim was saying Yeah, people were coming by the booth and they were showing pictures of their vMix setup. Yolo Live, I stopped by their booth, they said the exact same thing. People are showing us how they are using it, how they are getting away from the standard stuff that they put together and making it into a tool that that becomes useful for them. And I think that's the key right there uh, for anything uh, that has... Uh, something that that you can move from there. So I'm glad that the, anybody with impaired uh, use can use this device and I hope to see it a lot more. And Laura Thompson and the back end crew says,
5: it can also be overloaded in the audio space. Next question.
6: The next one is from Chris Clark in Tempe, Arizona. He's asking, we're nearing the end of the first school year, not interrupted by COVID closings. What changes, if any, have you noticed in the way schooling has been conducted, especially involving tech? Dave? I guess I would like to start by saying uh, all the teachers I know that were dealing with COVID and having to conduct classes and even organize their departments at the high school level uh, were very frustrated and uh, they've had a much better year. And they report to me that it's, it's such a relief to be able to do it the way they always did. And I think that's an embedded thing. It's a sort of sunk cost that people have uh, relied upon a system and a school um, environment as well as infrastructure, and they don't have to reach far anymore that's quite nearby. So I think the, if this is the first uh, COVID-free year in schooling, and next year it's even better, uh, we're going to fe- feel better, and uh, the stress levels on teachers certainly would have dropped.
3: Jeffrey, well, first of all, yeah, there were some COVID closings that here in this area, so I don't think we're totally out of the woods yet, even though it's getting pretty close. But uh, more to the point, I remember, I remember back in my day, I remember, uh, you know, how you'd wake up and you'd see all the snow being in a cold winter state and you'd see all the snow so the first thing you do is run down to that tv you turn it on you go to the channel that has all the news and you're looking at the stripe it's like is my school closing there? And my now it's like is my school closing oh there it is but it says virtual learning so i still have to go to class dang it so i think i think that's the biggest thing right there is with the virtual learning some of these uh classrooms uh, i haven't had first cl- uh, hand experience on it but i've seen some people create some great innovations with uh, virtual learning. And I think in the next five years, uh, virtual learning is gonna take, it's gonna be a slow process because you're not using it every day, but new ideas are gonna come into virtual learning to the point where five years from now, yeah, uh, it'll be something that it will not interrupt your school days. Because in the end, you know, if you have too many days off, because it happens here, happens in Minnesota, you get too many days off, then all of a sudden they have to extend school year. So your last day being June 10th or something like that, all of a sudden becomes a week later. And that gets really upsetting when you're in a classroom in the middle of summer waiting for the school year to end.
5: Yeah. And I I think I've seen two big trends. One is I I feel like many teachers have spent a lot more focus on their personal self-care and they're not putting in the um, exorbitant hours to Support their classrooms on their own dime as much anymore, and they're they're putting boundaries up to uh, protect their own their selves and their sanity, and to really help themselves get through the year. I think it was a, a good chance to take stock of the what they're putting into the students, and I think that's a healthy thing in general. The other thing I would agree totally with Jeffrey is um, schools are much more quick to just have a snow day or cancel school for the day because they don't have to cancel it. They can do virtual days. And some of the virtual days, some of the, some of the teachers in my kids' school really um, worked hard to have virtual school be part of the classroom throughout the year. So one of my kids' social studies teachers, she put different um, voluntary assignments into Microsoft Teams every single week to get kids familiar with the Teams interface, to understand where to find assignments, how to see videos, and it really helped us understand how she was going to do those snow days. Um, Some of the other teachers, they just threw together a packet of of, um, handouts, sent those home and just said, fill out X number of handouts. And it wasn't related to the curriculum at all. We didn't know how to use the tools. We were confused as parents as what the expectations were. And I think um, those teachers who are especially invested in making a seamless experience have really worked hard to make sure that the virtual tools are being used, where they're better to be used and using the classroom where it's the better tool to use. And other teachers are um, not necessarily doing the same thing. So uh, I think it's been a little bit of a good, a little bit of bad, but I think everyone's excited for the summer season coming up and uh, ready for another long school year to be uh, wrapped up soon. Next question. From Paul
6: Wallhouse in Austin, Texas, is the NT1 fifth generation studio microphone Wireless ME and Road Capture, the darling product of the NAB show. Will anyone on OH get one?
3: Jeffrey? I'm not sure about the NT1, uh, and it really depends on where you, where you are in your audio video journey. Like for instance, everybody in the group was really excited about that, uh, uh, that FR7. Uh, From Sony and I looked at a $12,000 price tag and I said, I'm not gonna have an FR7 in my in my uh, arsenal however, bird dog came out with the uh, it's the X 120 I believe it's called and it's $995 and It has 1080 it's 1080p I believe and but it is Wi-Fi 5 and it's uh, NDI HX3 so that means I can throw that thing on stage or it, without having basically having a wire close to it it becomes a camera that i don't rely on all the time but if i want like an overall crowd shot or something like that i can put it up high without having a cable running from it uh well besides the power cable i believe there was a battery on that as well but it's uh, so that's that's one of the devices I was really geeking out over, there was another device, I can't remember the name of the company, it was basically a little box for an at-home kit, and the box opened up and there was a PTZ camera and a confidence monitor and, and an audio device. Uh, so you could basically just ship that thing to somebody's house, they put it on a tripod, they lift it up and then you, you can control the camera, you can control everything uh, remotely and then, uh, and then do the com- conversation. I geeked out on that. Uh, the road stuff, yes, I did geek out on, but there's probably somebody out there that was like, yeah, that's a nice little consumer model, but uh, I usually work in a higher end. We also geeked out on Ross, and when we did that, I'll tell you something, when we did that interview, I had no idea what a Ross Ross had to offer at that point. And now I know that their boards are called Carbonite, and uh, and I know a little bit more about it. So that's the best part, is I I learned a little bit more. But the, the chances of me using a Carbonite are, unless I go into the higher end video production, are pretty much not going to happen. So it really depends on your level, where you are in audio or video as well. Next question.
6: It's from Douglas Carmichael, and he's asking Jeffrey, uh, what was your impression of the build quality and fader feel of the Yamaha DM3 mixer?
3: Jeffrey? I got to play with it for about all of five minutes uh at the Yamaha booth at NAM. And it was a decent mixer. It's very small, it's a, it's compact, so uh small band uh three to four person band it would work well with uh it does have Dante but it doesn't have it it it, uh, the Dante inside of it was 16 by 16 if I remember correct uh so that meant that you had you could only do 16 channels so something small whereas something like the Tascam uh their, their offering had a 16 by 64 option so that meant that if you bought four different breaker boxes those the those little uh breakout boxes that they had, stage boxes. Uh, You could actually get up to 64 channels of Dante if you needed it for mixing, if you needed it for uh, recording or anything like that. So if I was in sound recording, I would probably look at what Tascam has to offer. I know that Alan and Heath also had that same offering where it was a small board, but it had more than just the the amount of of, uh, channels that you had on the board to do something more. So the DM3, it's a great board. Don't get me out of all of it, but it does have some limitations. Thanks, Jeffrey. Next question.
6: From Paul Walhus in Austin, Texas. What are the features and functions of Innovative's new mobile workstation, the Scout NXT, that offer a modular and customizable solution for onset and post-production workflows?
3: Jeffrey. I went looking for this thing and I wasn't able to find it because there were two other things that were called the uh, Scout NXT. Uh, One was like a personal flying machine and the other one was a foldable cart that you could take on a plane with you so i'm not exactly sure did did you guys find it at all
5: no i searched for the same thing but i was, I was fascinated by the paragliding harness so uh maybe a different show a different time you can ask about that scout nxt but i couldn't find anything on the web either um so paul if you get a link for that and maybe put it into another show so we can do a little research beforehand uh we can get back to you some other time next question chris clark from Tempe, arizona Do you think that
6: there is an opportunity for developing and offering professional development training for school teachers on ways to improve their virtual teaching and learning when that is required of them?
5: Yes, I think that's a a drastically needed skill set. And I think it should be part of all teaching curricula is um, I think where we're where we need to go as a society is for teachers to be able to identify the best tool and the best use and the best way to teach things um, to set people up for their professional lives. And more and more professionally, uh, instruction as well as meetings are being done virtually. So it's an important skill set for students to learn how to navigate and listen and pay attention and um, see how learning in a virtual environment is different than a classroom one. Um, And I would personally support, you know, the opportunity to do more virtual learning uh, within schools and incorporating that in our teachers' professional development days. I don't know specifically what they train on currently, uh, but that definitely should be one of the tools in our toolbox, especially as things like pandemics or snow days, um, those sorts of things happen more often. Teachers are going to need that skill set more often. Dave?
6: Yeah, I endorse that professional training stuff too in the professional days or the PA days that teachers have, Uh, but I also think that there's an opportunity for faculties of education, because they have infrastructure already in place, to teach this uh, virtual teaching, if we're going to call it that, uh, as part of the learning of being a teacher. And then you come out of college with that knowledge, whether or not your school has the same infrastructure, I would think the infrastructure at the post-secondary level is much... uh, Uh, more supported perhaps just in IT value uh, to be able to set up uh, virtual school settings and let people find out more about how their skill set has to adapt to those situations. So I'd put it on the faculties of education to begin that process and then have it flow down into the school boards and all the school environments uh, districts to be able to adopt those techniques and get the equipment and facilities in place to make it easier for it to happen. Next question. From Douglas Carmichael, John, you mentioned the use of Teams and K-12. to Being an app designed for business first, have you had issues getting teachers and students to use Teams?
5: I have issues getting employees to use Teams. <laughs> it's a, It's a challenging product to learn. So I don't think there's anything specific to the education space that makes it difficult. There are some specific modules within Teams for education, like the ability to track and record assignments as well as attendance, Um, but it's like any technology. Some people will take to it easily and others will need additional support. Next question.
6: From Paul Wallhouse in Austin, Texas. What are the benefits and challenges of using blockchain technology to create a decentralized platform for content distribution and monetization with black, Backlight? Dave? Well, I'm not familiar with Backlight, and I'll confess I don't know what it is or what it does, but I am really interested in the application of blockchain in almost all aspects of society. Um, I always saw blockchain as a way of bypassing brokers. That is, anyone who works between you and another client or is a broker for things like insurance or shipping or um, transport or logistics, there are people who broker um, taking things over the border and that sort of stuff. And if blockchain were applied in many of these cases, then the assurance of a transaction and the control over the contracting process would be publicly available for everyone to view and therefore you can't cheat. And because it's an unchangeable blockchain, you can't change it or rewrite the past. So I think the benefits to create a decentralized platform and for content distribution and monetization is a great possibility for blockchain generally, not specifically used for currency. And currency was simply the demonstration of what blockchain is capable of or what kind of things and issues pop up with using it in currency. But blockchain is now used for a lot of other things, and uh, we're going to see it sort of invisibly infiltrate the whole process of anything where a transaction has to be authenticated or authorized or prearranged, like a broker usually does for you, and then blockchain will become very useful.
5: Jeffrey? Jeffrey?
3: Can't hear you, that. <laughs> I was I was doing lots of research because all these questions are coming up. Anyway, uh, so um, the one thing that I've always said was that blockchain was not performing to where I expected it to be in the future, and and this was before NFTs. This was when blockchain was first coined, and I could I saw a day where you could create a podcast, you could create a live stream, you could create a concert. And uh, be able to run it through blockchain to get the tickets, to give out the swag, to do, to do a whole bunch of other stuff with uh, with this device. So, uh, w- with this uh, with this system. So, I I'm not totally up on what uh, uh, what's the name of that program backlight does, but it's in this, in the direction that I was thinking that it will be, and it'll make a lot of a lot of things easier to uh to manage and it'll also make a lot of things harder to manage especially if anybody tries to do any type of attack on their on the blockchain for an event uh like a a, you know the taylor swift concerts perfect example uh if if anybody tries to attack that to try and get tickets or scalp tickets or anything like that then uh or, or scam people from getting tickets then you run into those little those little fears. But for the most part, I think this is a great direction of uh, where we're going with blockchain.
5: Yeah, I do think blockchain has a lot in the future, uh, but the cost of compute is still a challenge for many blockchain applica- applications, especially those that are, uh, is it proof of work? The one that uses a lot more compute power. Next question.
6: The next question comes from Paul Walhut. No, Idris Hagi in Fairfax, Virginia. Did SURE have any new wireless products in the NAB show this year?
5: I know SURE was demonstrating the um, AD600 Axient Digital Spectrum Manager uh, from the research team. That's one of the articles we saw. That was nominated for the NAB Product of the Year Award, and it had some RF spectrum management tools. I'm not exactly sure of all the feature sets with it, uh, but I did look at our our research packet, and that's uh, what I saw. Jeffrey?
3: Yeah, I did see one wireless camera mic option that uh, that Sony had. I'm sorry, sure. I'm thinking Sony. Whoa, uh, I don't have any comment because I don't think I saw anything from sure. All right, what's our next question?
6: Paul Walhus, uh, the 995, 995 Bird Dog at NAB. Would it work well as a webcam for Zoom?
3: Jeffrey. Yeah, the I don't see why not. This is the camera um, that uh, in question. So Wi Fi five. It's got HDMI, I believe. It, yeah, it's also got SDI in, excuse me, or SDI out, uh, and it does run uh, uh, NDI protocol. So I don't see why why you wouldn't be able to use it for uh, anything, any type of Zoom call. Because if it goes up to 1080p, uh, Zoom only goes to 1080p right now. Uh, for the high quality. So if that went to 4K, then it would be a different story. But right now, yeah, it's a perfect little camera for that.
5: What's our next question?
6: Paul Walhouse wants to know, what Tascam product do we like
5: best?
3: Jeffrey. Well, Tascam booth, I stopped by, uh, there were th- two things. One was the mixing console. One was their little handheld uh, handheld mixer, uh, which the name's escaping me on on that one. Uh, those were the two that were that they looked really well, but the the handheld was just basically the next iteration of their uh, of their popular uh, uh, system. So, yeah, that's all I can really report on.
5: And what's our last question today?
6: It's from Paul Walhouse in Austin, Texas. Do you aspire to be a minimalist? Dave, do you aspire to be a minimalist? You know, I live with a person, and I'm married to them, uh, who is a minimalist. And it's had a small effect on my life because I get stuff cleared out that I didn't intend to have cleared out. So I've had a few things lost in the moves or packaging or spring cleanouts, because my wife's focus on being a minimalist is so strong. Um, I'm not averse to people being minimalist. It's just not my thing.
5: Jeffrey?
3: You know, I, I'm I'm an influencer, so I every week I got packages at my doorstep to unbox. <laughs> Yesterday, I got a power washer that I, I've got to unbox and and play with and and do a video on. So I get a lot of stuff that's really stuffed in a closet or sending off to Goodwill or or anything like that. So for me to be a minimalist is really tough because I continually get stuff to review and uh and and go from there which I love because that's what I do. Uh we with that said we do have a spring purge coming up which is always a good time to clean out the uh the belfry and, and uh, get the bats out and make sure that no molds growing in the basement or or you know the the kitchen counters aren't going to have some grease on it that could start a fire or anything like that. So uh aspiring to be a minimalist no but being a a purgist, yes that makes sense
5: i would say i aspire to be a minimalist but i like stuff too much Um, and that brings us to the end of our show today and i want to say special thank you to our panelists especially uh, jeffrey and dave thanks for being able to sit through and our other panelists who had to drop a little bit early appreciate you joining as well For our producers, thanks for guiding the conversation, uh, giving us a couple hours worth of questions to talk about and discuss. We appreciate your contributions and there wouldn't be a show without your questions. Back in the crew, I appreciate everything that you do day to day, week in and week out for over 1,100 days in a row now, which is an amazing feat, um, especially with our large events like the NAB coverage we had last week. It's amazing the amount of contribution we have from our volunteers and our crew every single day. To our producers who are watching, if you'd like to become more involved in office hours, the best way to do that is to sign up for our daily email at officehours.global. From there you can learn how to log into our Discord where we have furthering conversations. Every Saturday we talk about education, but throughout the week we're talking about education in Discord as well. We will have Alan Carrington to talk about his pedagogy Wheel in the future. Uh, That date will be to be determined, so I'm sorry for the late change of plans, but We look forward to having Alan a little bit later Um, this week. We if we were to line up your questions end to end travel between each of them. We traveled 61,478 miles or 98,939 kilometers. That's more than 486 million bananas piled end to end. Um, That's it for our show today. Please stay tuned through the credits to see the great contributions everyone put into the show. Next week uh, we'll have an open discussion for brainstorming future education topics. So, come with your ideas.
6: Thanks,
3: Jeffrey. I think we should you buy bad. you a coffee. <laughs> that was that was fun uh, being put on the spot like that. It was uh, mm-hmm. so thankful for your uh, experience and knowledge because I didn't know <laughs> most of those questions at the end. And having been in too, that would have been that have been, yeah. been, been fun. Uh, well, yeah. Anybody that wants to be on the panel, come on down. Saturday is a great
5: day to join the panel. We have a little bit slower pace,
3: chance to demonstrate your expertise. Mm -hmm. And then you might get a whole show dedicated to your, your answers. Cool.
6: We'll see you all next week. Okay.